Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for tuning in, and a big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for putting on another great show. In the studio with me is Dr. Lyndon. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It's, good to see you. You know, it's good to see you, but it's weird. It's weird it's having weird. you back in the studio after two weeks away. Oh, yeah. I've I, been I, here I, for two weeks in a row and you haven't been here. Well, luckily I had G, uh, the GPS and I found the studio again. <laughs> <laughs> it was a bit weird. Now, I think we have a disembodied Dr. Lauren on the phone. Can you hear us, madam? I can hear you perfectly. Can you hear me? We can. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you've got corona, so we had to make you stay home, right? <laughs> That's right. No. I shouldn't joke, but no, no. Just, um, we have a bit home today, but um, my voice is still there. That's good. Well, you're going to be here for our news segment at least, and... Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll get rid of you because it's interesting today, Triple uh, R has taken the, the very smart move of limiting the number of people at the station. And that means that all of our guests today will be on the phone rather than here in person, which isn't ideal, but it is, uh, we do some great interviews on the phone. So we've got three amazing guests that we'll be speaking to and none of them are talking about uh, the pandemic. They're all on no. completely different normal scientific topics. Yes, so, we're just uh, going to, we're going to take this hour to take a little break, I think. Obviously people as uh, radiotherapy was talking about people are saturated with information and maybe we just need to think about some of the other really interesting components of science yeah. and take a break from it for a while before getting back into the feed or whatever, yeah. wherever you're getting your stress from, just take a break from it for a while, learn about some, some interesting science. Yeah, we're still going to mention it here and there, but we'll be good. Yeah. We're not going to freak you out. Uh, now, Dr. Lauren, what have you got for us in terms of news? Yeah, definitely. So I've been reading about limb transplants this week, um, which really fascinate me. So obviously, um, you know, when people lose their limbs from injuries, especially in wars, um, at the moment, the only option is to go a prosthetic, so a metal and plastic limb. So there's a lot of research going into what if we could actually transplant a limb from a donor. And um, you might have seen the news this week about the lady that had hand transplants. No, I missed that, yeah. Oh, very cool story, actually. Totally side side story, but um, this woman had some hands transplanted, some upper arm transplants onto her body after she lost her arms in an in an, in accident. And what actually happened is that they were very um, dark, so they were a darker skin tone than hers. They were male hands, so they were larger. And, um, and what happened over a couple of years is that they actually started to take feminine traits so her fingers became longer the wrist became thinner and the skin tone actually changed as well Hmm. so amazing so they're not really sure why they're actually doing a lot of work at the moment into her case to sort of work out what what happened in that situation but side point the the paper i was reading about was actually looking at limb transplants in rats and trying to stop the need for immunosuppressant drugs Right. So at the moment, if you have a transplant, any transplant, it means that you're going to be on immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life so that your body doesn't reject that new transplant. And so, yeah, which which is not a great thing, obviously. We don't want to suppress our immune responses, especially in times like now. So the scientists, what they um, considered was actually thinking about how cancer works and that cancer is actually very good at 
tricking our body into thinking that something is foreign is actually part of our own system. That's how cancer works. So what they've actually done is used some engineered microparticles that they've injected into a transplant and it actually releases a protein which is found in cancer cells and it tricks the body into thinking that this new transplant is part of the, the actual body. Mm. That's interesting. It's a very cool thing. So it, basically the way it does it, it tricks the body. The body then sends in regulatory T cells to uh, suppress the immune responses in that area. And in this particular study, they found that when they grafted an additional leg onto rats, that rat could actually have the leg attached for over 200 days without any drugs to suppress the immune responses. So it's it's pretty, pretty promising work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's an extraordinary outcome because... The, the whole need for, you know, immunosuppressant drugs, they, they really mess with your system overall. I mean, you know, and, and the limitations it places on people's lifestyle are quite extraordinary. So it's a, it. it's a pretty big deal if they can get that working. I, I love all this stuff on controlling our immune system, either to fight cancer or in this case, you know, mimic the way cancer That's does it. it. It's cool stuff. It's, it's, it's a very nice story in that, you know, obviously cancer is a horrible disease and, and there's mm. so many negatives, but it's nice when we can say, oh, that's quite clever what cancer does there. So let's use that same protein for good. Um, mm. the, the other really cool thing with this story, which I hadn't realized before, but they were saying that because they did a leg transplant, yep. um, they believe that it, it, it shows a lot of promise for other transplants because apparently the skin has actually got so many immune cells because, you know, obviously it's our protection against the outside world. Yep. So skin transplants are incredibly challenging. So yeah. if there's a, a limb transplant, that's a really difficult thing to do. So they're saying that because the limb transplant works quite well, they're hoping that they'll be able to do it for things like hearts and livers in the future. Mm, that sounds great. None of that story is logical to me. You think, oh, you're using cancer for good, and you're yeah. thinking that the the heart transplant is the relatively more uh, the relatively easy thing to deal with. Like a limb transplant is actually more complicated. Yeah. Oh, well, not complicated, but you know, has different complications. It's... So many different types of cells. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That there's a lot yeah. of counterintuitive thinking there. Well, thank you, yeah, Dr. Lauren. Exactly. I'm glad that you have this weird fascination with limb transplants. Which, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a really did, tough area. If anyone's interested, you can actually, if you search the paper online, it's, it's been in some of the news uh, websites, um, you can actually see a picture of, of the animal they used in the, in the study. And it is kind of weird to see this third leg jutting uh, out from the side of the body. See, but... I'm just thinking of ears on backs. It freaks yeah. me out. Don't want to watch that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, pass. <laughs> All righty. Dr. Lyndon, what do you got for us? Well, Dr. Shane, I wanted to take us far away today. I wanted to get away from this autumnal Melbourne day, the stress and the pressure that we're feeling across the city, across the country, get to a tropical island. I'm starting to nod off. Are you, are you talking us through some guided no, meditation? No, I'm, t I'm talking about beautiful sandy beaches, big skies, palm trees, beautiful surf. I'm taking us to the Mentawai Islands, okay. which are off oh, the coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. Famous for its surfing, famous for trekking, a fascinating culture, and also quite a lot of coral reefs. I thought you were going to say lack of medical facilities. <laughs> no, look, you're ruining it. No, we're on a beautiful tropical okay, island. Sorry, sorry, we're back, we're back. We're on a beautiful tropical <laughs> island. 
And a paper that came out in Nature this week from a study that was led by researchers at ANU, the first five authors of this paper are females, early to mid-career researchers, Mm -hmm. which is amazing, published in Nature, have used the coral skeletons from the reefs around these islands to reconstruct the ocean temperatures in this part of the Indian Ocean for the last, uh, back to about 1200, 1250 AD. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, this is a really, really exciting study. It's a big step forward in the field of kind of past climate variability understanding. So corals, they used one fresh coral and about eight fossilised bits of coral because the way coral skeletons work is a little bit like tree rings. Every Mm. year they get another layer and that Mm. the, the oxygen isotopes in that layer can tell us about the sea surface temperature and also how much fresh water was coming in. So if mm. there was more rainfall or less mm. rainfall, that gets picked up in the oxygen signature too. Mm. And this part of the Indian Ocean, so we're talking about the eastern part here, just about 150 k's off the coast of Sumatra in Indonesia. This is a really important area for Australia because if the ocean is cooler than normal there, it really cuts off a major source of moisture for the atmosphere and it means that it really dries up the mm. rainfall that we get in Australia. And that's exactly what we saw last year. 2019 was our driest year on record. Yep. Obviously, we'd had a couple of years of drought before that. Uh, thankfully, we've had some rains in the last couple of weeks which have softened the rainfall deficiencies in some places. But last year, it was super dry because one of the reasons was it was much cooler than normal in that part of the Indian Ocean mm, and warmer than normal in the western part of the Indian Ocean, which meant that in parts of eastern Africa, there was a lot of floods and plagues and it was quite horrible over there as well. 2019 and 2020. Yeah, fun times. Just great years. Anyway, so this seesawing pattern of sea surface temperatures in the Indian Ocean is a really important climate driver. It affects a lot of rainfall patterns that we get over Australia. We don't know a lot about it using uh, just weather observations, so this extended record using coral is really interesting. And these guys, so they've got about 500 years now of observations of yearly changes in in the sea surface temperature in this part of the Indian Ocean. And they have found that like that like last year's extreme events, these kinds of events don't happen that often. They found about 10 that they classified as really extreme. And four of those have happened in the last 60 years, which is interesting and lends a little bit more weight to this idea that lots of studies are suggesting that this pattern is going to happen more in the future. But they also found an event in about 1675 that was much more extreme. Mm. Really, really big sea surface temperature differences. It was really cold um, in our beautiful tro- off the coast of our beautiful tropical island. And they tied that back to some historical records from uh, Asian accounts. And they, and they were full of information about uh, droughts and famines and, and war and death. Wow. You know, it, it's, it yeah. can be a long bow to draw, climate equals um, mm. war and these kinds of things, but they did sort of suggest, well, this is a really extreme event that happened. It's much more extreme than the ones that we see in our modern data mm. sets. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, interesting and useful when it comes to thinking about what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. So these events obviously, you know, pack a big punch. They're really – we need to understand how – they're going to change. We need to understand how to predict them. And knowing now that in the last 500 years, before human-induced climate change came along, there is the potential for these extreme events to happen naturally right. and to be really strong. Yep. What yep. do we do now in yeah. a warmer world overlaying that on, on top? top of? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. exactly. So pulling all this stuff together is super valuable. It's so great seeing this world-leading research coming out of ANU. 
and a female-led team. It's just, it's all great. Plus, if you can read the paper while sitting on the tropical island... That's nice yeah. as well. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna up the ante on your Corona-free zone. Okay. Yep. Planet Mercury. Oh, I yeah. don't go to oh, Mercury yes. at 400 much degrees Celsius. So it, it's interesting. Um, one of the things that is hard to get your head around is mm-hmm. the extreme conditions on Mercury. So um, nightside, or you know, when it's um, not in sunlight, uh, minus 200 degrees Celsius uh, in the sunlight, 400 degrees Celsius. So there's a 600 degree differential. Wow. You know, compare that to Earth, where there's probably a no, 80 degree differential between the hottest and coldest parts yeah, yeah. of the earth and mm-hmm. so this is quite extraordinary question is why then would you expect to find ice there and this is something oh, that's wow. really interesting now of course most of the ice um, that we see in various parts of the solar systems come from comets and you know being deposited there it wasn't there originally but it's been deposited there so the curious thing though here's i'm going to have to talk you through part of this is that there's ice on the moon mm-hmm. and there's ice on mercury and there's a bit more ice on Mercury than we would expect if it was similar to the Moon, because they've both got no atmosphere, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a bit more than we would expect. So what, what's happening on Mercury that's not happening on the Moon? So here's the cool part. The, the planet Mercury is being irradiated quite heavily by, by the Sun, mm-hmm. and that means a lot of different particles hitting it. One of those particles is protons. Those protons interact with the surface layer, the soil on the surface, essentially. It's not really soil, but, you know, the, the surface layer of mercury. What is it if it's not soil? Oh, well, it's just dust and dirt. Okay. And, you know, but it's not what we would call soil in the backyard, so yep. it doesn't have organic components and so forth. But, and basically, those protons create these hydroxyl groups, so OHs, so oxygens and hydrogens. Mm-hmm. Then the incredible heat of mercury pops those out, and they bump into other ones. And when they bump in appropriately, they create water. Some of that water just goes off into space. Mm-hmm. Some of it manages to find crevices that never see the sun oh. and hide down in those crevices as ice. And this mechanism is not available on the moon because the moon's too far away from the sun. So the mm-hmm. number of protons isn't Also, isn't it's enough. the reaction. So you're getting this reaction. In addition to other things crashing on there, yep. you've got this additional reaction that's allowing... These, um, these particles of water, or particles, these molecules of water, to end up frozen in crevices on Mercury, even though the temperature is 400 degrees. And in fact, it wouldn't work if the temperature wasn't so hot. So the heat of Mercury is what's allowing the water to form ice on Mercury. How cool is that? That is cool. That's what's, very cool. What's the rotation rate of Mercury? Like, what's a Mercurian day? It's not long. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it's it's not that long, I don't think. I'd have to look it up. But that's still important too, and that's something the moon doesn't really have either. Well, the moon does rotate relative to the sun. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't rotate relative to us. Oh. So one side always faces the Earth, but the moon goes around the Earth, so different parts. So if you're on, if you're on the moon, you will see the sun rise and set. Oh, there we go. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, there we go. We're going to have to take a break, folks, uh, and we will be hopefully getting our first guest on the phone in just a few moments. It's going to be cool. Dr. Lauren, I've only got one phone, so I've got to get rid of you. (laughs) I know where I stand. That's okay. (laughs) Great talking to you, though. Thanks for calling in. Always fun. Talk to you soon. Okay, bye-bye. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Now, on the phone, hopefully, we still have Stuart McFarlane from the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University. Stuart, can you hear me? I can. Good morning. Good morning. Um, sorry that we had to do this by phone. I know originally you were, you were coming into the studio, but uh, we're just quarantining everyone. 
never know. Uh, we've got to stay on air. But you um, you work in an area which I, I this piqued my interest when I first saw the press release that came out uh, from RMIT around this idea of sleep inertia, which is a term I hadn't heard before. Can you run us through what is meant by that? Yes, well, the, the common term or one that's most familiar to to many of us is morning grogginess. Right. So the feeling um, of this slight disorientation and and grogginess when you wake up. Hmm. And I mean, I'm I'm an interesting case here because I don't tend to feel that when I wake up in the morning. So I'm kind of on the second I open my eyes. That's that's completely feasible. Sleep inertia is believed to be a, uh, a shared experience within the population, right. but it, it, the severity um, alters between humans. So in your case, yep. you may have the capacity to experience sleep inertia, but because of the extremely complex field of sleep um, that can affect the intensity of sleep inertia. So in your case, and this is not a clinical diagnosis by any means, but you might have a, a very stable and rigid sleeping pattern. Yeah, so, uh, only when it's alcohol-induced, I think. <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. So so what do people normally experience? I mean, what what is, what is happening to the body and the brain in these situations where you, you wake up with this morning grogginess? Uh, great question. Well, to start, we don't actually know um, the, the where sleep inertia extends from from an evolutionary standpoint. But what the latest research suggests that is actual cerebral blood flow within brain regions. So different areas of the brain which relate to our cog cognitive processes receive blood um, at different times. Right. So there has been a correlation um, in terms of sleep inertia dissipation with blood flow to, say, the cerebral cortex, mm. which takes longer. Um, so the, the symptoms we experience um, can be quite serious with respect to industry and personnel working in situations where um, cognition and alertness uh, needs to be in peak performance. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, I always think about how we develop these sorts of things, and it, it seems to me as though this is a bit of a flaw. If you were, you know, back on the savannah and and there was a predator, you'd need to kind of wake up and be alert and move fast. Um, it doesn't seem like a good thing for us to evolve this. Is this a is this a more modern phenomenon? Do you think that we're experiencing? Uh, well, from what we can tell, it's it's not a modern phenomena. It's just that we have the capability to be able to test for it now. Right. Um, it's the, the idea of feeling groggy is a very common experience. That if if you look back in literature, it it has been um, cited mm. as a feeling that we experience through, throughout the centuries. Right. In terms of the evolutionary aspects, it's a great question and it is unresolved. One theory suggests that it may be because we don't, within situations of danger, um, as compared to 
normal situations to say if your baby's crying, um, that may not necessarily mean that you need this direct drive to um, negotiate dangerous situations. And what I mean by that is that it's not an imperative from um, the physiological uh, standpoint of sleep inertia. So it may, in fact, um, relieve the intensity of adrenaline. Right, right. Um, and and mediate that, but but like I said, it's a, it's a great area, and it's still we we it's yet to be um, discovered mm. where it comes from. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, that's fascinating, Stuart. It's Dr. Linden here, and I I think I'm kind Hi. of understanding that now. When you think about, sometimes you need to wake up and run away, but other times you need to wake up and put a baby to sleep or do something that doesn't need all of your. All of your mental faculties, but I understand exactly that. Exactly right. Okay, good. That I've got that in my head. I think I have <laughs> lost my sleep inertia for the day, which is good. Um, but your work, as I understand, is looking at at soundscapes or different different sounds and how our auditory our auditory stimuli uh, can help us deal with or um, mediate different types of sleep grogginess. Can you talk us through how you're kind of combining? I understand you have a, a musician background. So how are you combining all these different parts of your expertise to look at this this part of our lives? Um, great questions. So this research stems from an interest in music. So I have a, a research background in auditory perception. So what things sound like how they make you feel and how they may make you react. So looking through the sleep science literature, I did find this area um, which they describe as countermeasures for sleep inertia. Now they can contain caffeine, face washing or structured routines as measures to counteract sleep inertia. Within this suite of um, techniques is sound and it became particularly fascinating to me because of the fact that sound is used as uh, an auditory awakening tool which is really common within society. Mm. It, it, it's, it's funny, um, I, since I was like 15, I've been using my stereo system to wake me up with music. And uh, I, I wake my 12-year-old up uh, with music as well, and he always seems to wake up a little better. Is there, I mean, how much do we know about the, so the, the types and the, you know, is there a, an element of, um, you know, volume versus tempo versus, you know, various other parameters of music Lack to give or us... presence of brass yeah, instruments, yeah, these yeah, kinds of things. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what, is, is there any sort of feeling as to, you know, should it always be bark? I mean, what, what, what does it in terms of waking us up appropriately? More great questions, and I'll try and make it simplistic for you. And this is why we undertook this research, is because... The current literature suggests and has looked at sound in various different aspects of um, emotional fluctuation and cognition. But generally speaking, they rely on measurement by genre, mm. which if you, if you come from a musical background, especially, 
genre doesn't really mean anything right. in terms of replication, um, future research, and defining the specific elements within music that may be effective agents. So within this research, we added a filter um, to the idea of genre feeling um, in which we asked participants to describe their perception of their waking sound through musical elements, i.e. melodicity, pitch, loudness and volume, tempo, etc. Mm. And what we found that people who perceive their sound to be melodic um, against the criteria of sleep inertia came out more successful among any um, element of music, mm. which was quite fascinating because if you take that evidence and then turn back to the literature that describes stimuli by genre, you will find that within these genre descriptions, most of what they're talking about and the effects they have could be considered as melodic. Mm. Well, Stuart, we're, unfortunately we're out of time, but it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff, and I think uh, there's so much uh, that we are starting to use music for. You know, musicology is becoming a, a staple in the healthcare system in many regards, and the idea of utilising yeah. it with regards to pulling us out of sleep is, is fascinating, and, and not just assuming you know, the way we've done it in the past is correct, and really looking into it is great. So thanks so much for the chat today, and uh, good luck with this ongoing work. It's fascinating. It must be great for a musician to, to be involved in this. It's, it's a pleasure to work in, and thanks for having me. Thanks, Stuart. Okay, that was Stuart McFarlane from the School of Media and Communication at RMIT University. We're going to take a break for some music. Some uh, melodic music, In case you're music, not yet hopefully. awake. Yeah, oh, this is actually, this is very melodic. Oh, like good. This piece. Well, you think it is. This is what Stuart <laughs> was saying. It depends on what you find melodic. And when we come back, we'll be talking to our second guest from Monash University. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. And on the phone, we have Associate Professor Roger Pocock. He is from the Monash Biomedicine Discovery Institute at Monash University. Roger, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks very much, Shane, for having me on the show again. Oh, thanks so much, Roger. It's good to, good to chat. Sorry we couldn't have you here in person. Um, but we did see that you were doing some really interesting work in uh, you know basically worms, so before we get into the sort of the structures and, and, and that you're actually dealing with, tell us a bit about this worm that you use in your research and why you use that one. Yes, so I work on um, a worm. Its name is uh, Cedarabditis elegans, and it's a millimeter long. Mm-hmm. We know more about this organism than any other organism on Earth. Wow. And, and most people haven't heard about it. Well, it's pretty small. <laughs> it's small. It's a millimeter long. Yeah. It contains you know, precisely 959 cells. Okay. Um, a third of those cells are neurons, nerve cells. Um, and it's been worked on by scientists for maybe 50, 60 years now. It's made some you know, fundamental discoveries over the course of uh, the last 60 years that have been really fundamental for understanding biology, but also disease processes. And when you when you talk about the number of cells, do, do you mean different types of cells or cells in total? Yes, yeah, cells in total, actually. So they have very similar cells to uh, what we find in the human body, yep. uh, just many fewer of them. So, you know, the, the nervous system, as I said, is 302 cells, but they have 
skin cells and muscle cells and intestinal cells, but uh, they're fewer in number. Right. But the way that the way that they're generated is is exactly the same as the way in humans. And and the number, like you, you gave us a very precise number for the number of cells. Is that every one of these worms, when it's fully grown, has that number of cells? That's exactly right. So there's some really amazing um, research from you know late 70s, early 80s, actually now, uh, where a very famous guy called John Salston um, counted the number of cells during development. So from a single cell mm. through to an adult, and he found that the animals develop in precisely the same way from worm to worm, and every single animal has exactly the same numbers. I've got to tell you, that, that that's freaking me out. That's amazing. Oh, me too. Yeah, that is amazing. Yeah, he won, he won the Nobel Prize for that discovery. Actually. Oh, fair call. Uh, yeah. yeah. He spent 10 years looking at worm embryos to count how many cells they have. So, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you'd have a bad day if you suddenly grabbed one that had 954 or something like that. Oh, you'd panic. You'd panic. <laughs> you'd panic, I reckon. Hang on then, Roger. It's Dr. Linden here. But it's not because worms are so amazing that we know so much about them. We These worms, we know the most about them because they can tell us a lot about humans. Is that right? That's exactly right. They give us a huge amount of insight into how human cells develop, how they behave, um, and how tissues are formed. Um, so, for example, this worm has 20,000 genes, and most of the genes are also found in humans. Obviously, they're slightly different. The sequences are slightly, slightly changed over, over evolution, but they perform very similar functions in these two very distant organisms. But we use it because they're really easy to work with, uh, we can manipulate their genome very, very rapidly and understand quite quickly how genes um, control uh, cell behavior and function. So what component then of all the myriad questions that we can use these worms to answer, uh, what particular area are you focusing on here? What solution are you trying to find? Yeah, so my lab is predominantly focused on understanding a basic question. So how do you make a brain? That's a simple, simple, simple question. question. <laughs> wow. But if you then think about that, you know, you need to um, you need to make a neuron, make a nerve cell, and that nerve cell has to perform a particular function. How is that controlled? And because the neurons in worms are very similar to the neurons in humans, but there are many fewer of them, we can really dissect out how do you make a particular neuron type, meaning how, how do you control genes, how do genes control whether you make this neuron or another neuron. Uh, so this is the major question we're trying to answer, how do you make a neuron? But then also, once you've made that neuron, how does it um, migrate to where it's supposed to function mm. during development? And then how do these neurons connect with each other by extending processes to communicate? And all of these mechanisms are conserved in humans. For example, we have a nerve cell in our hip that sends a projection all the way down to the foot. How does it know how to get there? Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. Very fundamental questions. Yeah, yeah. And and with regards to the work you're doing now, I mean, I know you're looking into aspects where these things go wrong, so neurodegeneration mm. type diseases. Um, yeah. I mean, give, give us an idea there of how you're approaching that, because you know some of these have had many different approaches and and not a lot of success. I think it's fair to say with certain certain neurodegeneration diseases. Yeah, well, what I would say is that a lot of the time, these really important discoveries come from a different angle, yep. and that's where this discovery that we've just recently published came from. So I was trying to understand um, how does this family of genes, they're called microRNAs, how do they control stress responses? Um, we identified a particular microRNA called MIR1, um, which is really interesting because it's the only microRNA in worms 
uh, the sequence of which is 100% the same in humans. Mm. Now, worms, worms in humans are separated by hundreds of millions of years of evolution, and the fact that this sequence is exactly the same in humans and worms means it's probably very important in performing the same function. So we found through, I would say, six or seven years of work, I'm going to talk about it in two minutes now, to be yep. honest, but uh, we found that this microRNA controls a very fundamental process called autophagy. Now, autophagy means self-eating, and it's basically a recycling system that cells use to remove toxic proteins or organelles within cells that are not functioning correctly. And we found that this is really, really important. This microRNA is really, really important for controlling autophagy. And actually what it does is it's able to remove um, this toxic protein that causes Huntington's disease. And we found that it removes this protein in worms. That was our fundamental discovery early on. Um, and then I contacted a um, collaborator at the University of Cambridge uh, who agreed to take this project on, in, on the human side of things. And he found that exactly the same microRNA that we found in worms functions in humans in the same way. So it also regulates autophagy and can remove um, Huntington aggregates that cause Huntington's disease. So it's amazing that this same molecular pathway that we discovered in worms, not actually looking for a potential cure for Huntington's disease, has potentially uh, provided a new avenue here. It, it's fascinating. R Roger, when, when you talk about this, one of the things that I always find amazing is aspects of biology that, as you say, separated by you know probably 600 million years of evolution, mm. seem to have been optimized long ago and just haven't changed. Is that the way you perceive this? Like when you look at this particular piece of our biology that's the mm. same in the worm, is it that somehow biology just got it right and there was no further need for optimization? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, this, this process that we've been working on autophagy is really ancient um, and it's required basically for cells to respond to stresses and that could be something as simple as um, heat stress where mm. cells are too hot. And when that happens is proteins in the cell don't fold correctly and you really need this fundamental mechanism to remove these defective uh, proteins and that would be something that's really really important throughout evolution mm. so if you found a molecule that control it very efficiently why change it yeah yeah uh, Roger I'm interested in what this discovery means for people who do have Huntington, Huntington's disease does that mean that their mirror one is they've got less of this kind of um, protein mm -hmm. eating this, ha this happening less they've got fewer of these cells or they're, they're just missing yeah. altogether yeah, there's not so much data on that, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. In Parkinson's patients, which this is also relevant for, there are lower levels of this microRNA in the um, blood fluid, blood fluid, blood fluid, basically. So that's a potential link. Um, what we're doing right now is we've got pharmaceutical companies that are, that are interested, but what they want us to show is that this pathway that we've discovered can actually function um, in a mouse model for Parkinson's disease or Huntington's disease. So that's what we're doing right now. We're trying to attract some funding uh, to enable us to perform those experiments, and then we can, in time, identify a therapeutic to target this pathway. Mm. Roger, it's it's fascinating stuff. I whenever I hear about this, this is tiny little worm and how much it can tell us about our own biology and and open up these sort of avenues of research and also give you that capacity to work on a part of the human anatomy but not in humans is just just wonderful. So, look, good luck with the work. I hope you get the funding that you need. And um, thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thanks for your time. Great talking to you.
Okay, Associate Professor Roger Pocock there. Now, I'm going to tell you all of his details because he didn't start because there's a lot. He's an MHNMRC Senior Research Fellow. He's a Vesky Innovation Fellow. He's head of the Neuronal Development Plasticity Laboratory at the Monash Biomedical Discovery Institute in the Department of Anatomy and Developmental Biology at Monash University. Wow. How do you keep it straight? And a big worm fan. And we a big like worm that fan. Here on it's R. great stuff. Mm. Uh, folks, some music for you, and we'll be uh, back with our final guest in just a few minutes. Triple R. Uh, we're back. It's all happening. Hopefully, all those events are still going on. Suspect they are. Anyway, we have our final guest on the phone now. It's Matt Border. He's a PhD student from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe Uni. Matt, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thanks so much for, for uh, accepting our call. Sorry we couldn't get you in the studio. Um, Lyndon uh, didn't want anyone near her today. She's freaking out. Right, Lyndon? No, no. we're just practicing good hygiene. No one's freaking out. Um, now, you're no working. It, it's an interesting area you're working because it's kind of relevant to all this stuff because you, you're in the area of antibiotic drug discovery. Um I'm guessing we're, we're kind of getting to the end of the path with antibiotics, aren't we, with all the ones we've got at the moment? Things are becoming problematic there, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's an emergence of, uh, in, well, increased emergence of bacteria that are becoming resistant to uh, current forms of treatment. Uh, yeah, so we are looking to find new ways of tackling this and um, looking for uh, new molecules that could potentially then be developed into antibiotics. Mm. Now, my understanding in the past is that we've essentially found these in nature. How are you guys going about um, looking for new new potential candidates? Well, um, I've been uh, my work specifically involves using high-powered computers to search through libraries of hundreds of thousands to millions of molecules to find those that are predicted to bind to crucial proteins within bacteria mm -hmm. and uh, they're necessary for bacterial growth and, and thus you uh, can prevent that. Okay, and, and how do you, like, so you, you look through this catalogue of molecules, how do you then, like, determine which ones are appropriate candidates? I mean, is there a sort of a methodology in the coding or something you use that says, okay, this, this particular molecule's got a chance of connecting to that part of the bacteria that's, you know, where its Achilles heel is? Yeah, well, the shape of the molecule, as well as other properties, are very important for binding to the proteins that we want to inhibit. Yep. Uh, so essentially it's like trying to find the right key for a lock. It will, the um, computer algorithms will search through all of these uh, vast libraries and try and find ones that will fit within a particular pocket of the protein and hopefully inhibit it. Hmm. The problem that we encounter is that this protein is constantly changing shape. Right. So it becomes... Yeah, and, and in terms of... So if you look through a million of these molecules, how many how many potential candidates would you find, typically? Well, they're all... It's very hard to say because they all become... Uh, they all get ranked and they get a value assigned to them. And it's, it's a very uh, tenuous value, uh, but we then go through and uh, manually look at the ones that are scored highly um, and we 
manually curate uh, part of the list. Mm. And you then, so you then somehow use virtual reality to examine these? Tell us about that process, because that's something I, I haven't heard of before in this space. Yeah, well, um, virtual reality uh, allows us to enter a, a room which is fully immersive and in 3D and allows us to look up close at the proteins and small molecules uh, and we can actually treat them as if they were real life objects so we can hold them in our hand we can twist them we can make them so big that we can actually walk through it and i mean physically walk through it assuming mm. you've got the space in front of your computer you can you can actually walk through it so we can look at the way that these molecules are predicted to bind in 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 great detail Wow, that's that's amazing, Matt. I mean, we've had people on the show before talking about using VR to allow people to walk through cells and walk through different parts of the body more as an educational experience than as a research experience. I'm interested to know more about what what it is that you can learn from being that close to the proteins and the molecules in virtual reality. Is it does it allow you to work better as a team or does it really help you fit the lock in the key into the door what is it about vr that helps us take that next step um yeah uh, both of those uh so looking at sharing this information we can have uh, up to 20 people in the same virtual space that you're in so you can actually have uh, the avatars of 20 people in this software um, uh, I use particularly called Nanome and it allows all of these researchers to be able to view the molecule up close together so you can all have a discussion uh, regarding uh, what molecules you think are going to be or well, have the best chance of being taken further down the process. Uh, it also allows us to look closely at the interactions that these molecules will have with the surrounding protein and we can even uh, build Within the software, we can add on and build onto these small molecules to try and optimize this binding mm. process. Matt, it's, uh, it's fascinating stuff. It's really interesting. I'm afraid we're pretty much out of time, but um, I'm going to say the same thing to you. I say to everyone working in this field, please hurry up. Um, we, <laughs> we need this quick. It's great that you're using this different sort of this technology around VR and how you visualize things. That sounds really good. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thanks, Matt. That was Matt Border from the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at the La Trobe Institute of Molecular Science at La Trobe University. We've got a couple of minutes to go. I wanted to make a couple of comments before we went. Just, you know, Uh-oh. You he's know. had two weeks away from the microphone. Well, and I felt now like I lost back. my public voice. It was out of control, especially <laughs> with stuff going on. Mm. Um, but it's interesting, you know, I shared a, um, a symptom list for corona earlier in the week, which has been shared a lot. And we have to be really careful that we you know, get that symptom list from the right source. So, you know, if someone sneezes on you, this is not one of the symptoms of corona. It may be hay fever. And if a person has hay fever and corona, you've got a problem. But generally speaking, that's mm. not how it works. So be careful where you find that. The other thing that I'd just like to say to everyone out there, and I know we have such a great community um, listening to us on Triple R, and they know how to interact with the community. But 
I was at a supermarket this morning and the one the one person I really felt for was the, the person who served me and how they're coming to work and interacting with so many people, mm. often being treated quite badly and and yet, you know, we don't think about them very often. And I was particularly nice to my you know, the person I'm in, sure in the I'm sure you're shop. always nice to Well, Shane. I was extra nice today okay. because I thought, you know, these people are really struggling. And one of the things that's being forgotten in all of this, which I know, Dr. Linden, you know, you're keenly interested in as well, is the issue of mental health in addition to our more physical health. Yeah, well, that's it. For some people, two weeks of <clears throat> self-isolation could sound like heaven, but for a lot of others, mm. not <laughs> at all. And there's also the element for me of just how much information is being pumped out there and what people believe and a lot of critique of bad behaviour and so forth. But some people are in a situation where the, the sort of information they're getting is really stressing them to the point where they're behaving badly. We know humans do this when they're pushed too far, and there's a lot of that going on at the moment. So we've got to really stay calm and be mindful of our neighbours. And it's that old thing, if your neighbour comes next door and says, I need to borrow a toilet roll, and borrow being an unusual term there, just give them one and smile, even if it means you may have less, because I think that's really what being in a society is about. We see this kind of behaviour working well with immunisations. Often we immunise ourselves against things that we are low risk for, but we do it to help those who are high risk. Very similar in the situation we're in at the moment. You know, Communities work best when they support and help each other, and that's one of the things that we should do. I mean, we'll pump out more and more on the science of what's going on over the, you know, the coming months, but um, I think being a good community, and you know, it's one of the things that the Triple R community is particularly good at, in my view, you need to teach everyone else to do yeah. the same. And in this time where people are being told to distance each other, socially having that awareness that we are as a community still together and still able to talk to each other and listen to each other is really, I think, heartwarming and important. Yeah. And uh, just final note, like uh, just look, look at where the information is coming from, folks. Always look at the source. See if you can find the source. And if you can't and it's hard to find, then just give it the credit that it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, make sure that your information is, you know, of a reputable source. We've had a great day, though broadcasting again today without guests in the studio which is a little eerie it is it's a bit eerie and a bit um yeah a bit a bit harder to communicate when you can't see each other you, you have to try a little yeah, bit harder it's just a little different yeah but you know amazing science you know iron man levels of virtual reality using worms and, and understanding yeah. sound to wake us up in the morning there's some incredible science going on around the city yep so thank you to those guests who were willing to take our phone calls today um they were fabulous on the phone which is great because and dr phone... lauren too and oh dr lauren almost forgot all mm. about her and she's probably listening to make sure i mention <laughs> her at the end of the show uh lauren unfortunately has a head cold um which people are still going to get you know the flu season's coming so we're going to be mindful of that as well anyway thanks so much for listening to einstein and go go we will be back next week unless for some reason we're not but <laughs> we have every intention of being on there next week so we will give you more science then until then though stand by for eat it the team is waiting over there in studio one and thanks for listening to triple r hi this is dr shane thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's einstein and go go a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Go Go's Twitter account or Facebook page.